Good afternoon, my name is Amanda Silla and I'm a student project manager at the Clark Forum for Contemporary Issues. Today I'm joined by Marie Brigham who is the founder of Accept and also the co-host of Hack Gates. So once again, Ms. Brigham, thank you so much for joining me. Before we begin, could you just give us a brief overview of what Accept is, how it came about, and just a little bit about sure. the organization? Sure. So Accept stands for Admissions Community Cultivating Equity and Peace Today. We're a nonprofit um, advocacy group that seeks to remove the racial barriers in the path to post-secondary education. And I started it in a fit of rage in the middle of the night after yet another police shooting of a black man. And after 23 years of working in the college admissions profession, I left my job to launch this full time. And so for the last two years, my career has been focused on the work of Accept, again, removing those barriers, but really focused on institutional and systemic change. And really thinking about how we can just strip this whole thing down and rebuild it from the ground up. Yeah, and I know in your, in your bio, you worked with a bunch of admissions especially in your alma mater and mm -hmm. also after college. So what do you think about your experience from those times and how does it also like impact your work and accept sure. now today? That's a great question. I think it's, I mean, without question, absolutely informed and driven my work, but in a way that I, I hope is different. One of the things I'm going to talk a little bit about tonight too is I am, I am multiracial. I am Vietnamese and white. I have always had this lens of my life of what it is to have privilege, what it is to not have privilege, and to have feet. As a friend of mine who is native says, feet in two canoes. So that awareness, just in my lived experience, of what it means to have privilege and what it means to not have privilege, to see the benefits of both is really intense in college admissions. To have that lens in this space is incredibly clarifying and sometimes bleak. But also I think there are a lot of myths and mythology about the path to college. For me, one of the biggest things that I bring to this work is an unusual awareness of the mythology versus the reality. It's because of a lot of my professional experiences and leadership experiences, understanding how the sausage is made in a really detailed way cuts through that mythology of that path to college which means, I think, brings us more clarity of what could be done. So often we're stuck in those myths that we work around the edges. We make change that's on the margins, right? Because we have bought into this story. And I think with my professional experience, plus that lived experience and my identity, has, has really taught me and why I think we're doing things differently with Accept is because there's that awareness of, of what it means to be in and out and how the sausage is really made at the same time. What do you think are some of these myths that were so it's so ingrained that sure. you do not notice them? Yeah, I think, well, there are three that I really <laughs> kind of strike me often. First is that the mythology is that college admissions is centered on the applicant, right? Like, we think that it's about you. Students believe, it's about the families. Everyone believes, like, oh, okay, so the student has to do tests. The student needs to get better grades, the student, the student, right? The truth is, it's the institution that's at the center of the admissions process. Everything else revolves around that. So while we're spending all of our time and energy and policy, how do we improve students? We're not holding institutions accountable. I think that's one of the big myths. 
Another big myth is this idea, this romantic idea that, you know, you get this application and you read it and you score it and you take it to this committee room and everyone sits around and votes and who gets in because they're the best student here. That's not how decisions are made in college admissions. The truth is decisions are made well before a student applies and they don't know that. There's this very sophisticated statistical modeling that colleges, including Dickinson, but really almost all of them that are selective, these consultants build these statistical models that optimize tuition revenue and optimize yield. The student who says yes to the offer. Because those two things tend to drive colleges' decision-making. As much tuition as possible and to look as prestigious as possible is what those two metrics mean. And so who gets in is really defined by this statistical modeling, not the actual kid, not the actual applicant. Here's what really freaked me out recently. <laughs> I got sucked into the Bama Rush TikTok thing that occurred that was a couple of months ago. It was all about young women at University of Alabama going through a recruitment cycle, going through a rush, right? And it was crazy. One woman was describing, here's how sororities make decisions, and she was describing the statistical modeling that's used in admissions and how it's a piece of software. And I started digging into it, and that software is written by someone who used to work in college admissions. Should the path to college look like Alabama Rush? Because that's what is happening. I think those are two big myths that really just kind of break my head in two, that we, that we just buy into so much. And I think the last one is that when colleges talk about the prestige and their outputs, right? This is how many students graduate, and look what they go on to. What they don't acknowledge is that those outputs are defined by the inputs, right? If you're only admitting students with these super glossy metrics that tend to predict wealth and parental support, they're going to have really good outcomes. So should colleges pat themselves on the back for good outcomes when the game is set from the beginning? I think those are some of the myths that I think we buy into so much. This is what matters when truth is None of those things actually matter. And that unfortunately the applicant themselves, they're not in control of most of this process. Yeah. I know you talked also about how we always were on the margins and mm -hmm. some of the changes that happens to change these are kind of marginal changes, mm -hmm. not, not systemic changes. So one of the things that has happened is in the pandemic, mm -hmm. colleges where went text optional, mm -hmm. Well, elite schools, I think Harvard was one of them, where they just, you know, downplayed the scores. So they said they were going to downplay mm -hmm. the scores and and look at the community engagement, um, familiar responsibilities, what kids are doing outside of school and stuff like that. What do you think of that approach? Do you think sure. it's one of those marginal decisions that is not fixing the mm -hmm. issue or it has potential, but they're not mm -hmm. tapping into that potential? One of the papers that we released through the Hack the Gates project is called Test, Option Test Optional is Good, but it's not the solution. It is, I think, a good start, good, test free, which is what Dickinson does. Test Optional, I'm a touch more cynical about that. It does remove one of the barriers. However, and, and we're up to almost three quarter of US colleges now, and Harvard was not the first. Frankly, I tend to not care what they do. Dickinson, frankly, was one of the first in 1994. So this institution has been at the forefront of this for a long time. 
I think it removes a barrier, but I got really concerned and at times frustrated at the beginning of the pandemic that colleges believed that that was all you had to do to remove racialized barriers. I think it's a start. Now, what you described is like colleges are going to look at these other things to see. In theory, colleges have always looked at those things to see what the student is like. To me, a truly equitable path to post-secondary education wouldn't care about what you do at home. Those pieces that we call like holistic admissions, they come from a very racialized and exclusionary foundation, right? And I think in this current model of admissions, we ask especially students of color and low-income students to, to, I don't know, commodify trauma in some ways. And I worry that with moving away from test scores that colleges will say, we care more about that. And then students feel that pressure of, I have to tell you this sob story or you know things like that. I think it's a start. I think it's a great start. I applaud Dickinson for being at the bleeding edge of doing that work, but it's not the end game. It's one step. If there was one step that you think would really be really influential for colleges, or maybe one or two things they could do, what, what would that be and what would that look like? Oof, that's a great question. I think one thing that's radical that colleges could do to really change and behave in a more equitable way is to not participate in U.S. News and World Report rankings. Here's why. Colleges make way too many policy decisions and budgetary decisions through the lens of how do we climb in the rankings. And so they make these decisions of how you climb in the rankings and U.S. News and World Report changes their methodology every single year, so it's always kind of a guessing game. And the, the data points that that methodology values aren't about education and certainly not about equity. So that, that desperate need that colleges have to chase prestige as measured through this one for-profit magazine has led to some really terrible policy decisions that impact marginalized students the most and most negatively. I believe truly that if colleges want to move faster on the path towards racial equity, they, get, they quit participating in rankings altogether. That is a huge ask because we know that the colleges that have refused to participate have felt it in the marketplace. Like their rankings have dropped because US News and World Report punishes them for not participating and so they pull numbers out of thin air, which causes everyone then to panic. But if colleges and universities could just get away from caring about that metric at all, I think that could do an enormous amount of good. But that would mean a really dramatic cultural shift among college presidents and the boards of colleges. What about students who use that as a marker for determining how to go to school? Like, what would they use then to check oh, the God. colleges? I wish they would use literally anything else than that, truly, literally anything else besides U.S. News and World Report. One of the challenges that I would make to families when I still worked in high schools, I would say, okay, tell me, your, if you could divide your own special ranking system, what would you value? What would you give the most weight to? What would you give the least amount of weight to? And they would tell me, and then I'd pull up that stupid magazine and be like, let's look at the methodology and see where your values lie in terms of this number. And it almost never matched, ever at all, like in any way, shape, or form. 
And I try to do that to demonstrate this thing, this metric that you say is important, doesn't match what you say at your core is important. How do I get you to find what's right for you versus what this tells you? And that was a hard thing. That was a hard thing to do. And so I hear your question, what will families use? And my snarky response is, my God, I hope anything else, like literally, truly anything else. But I think your point's a very good one. In almost every other nation, there is a government document that tells you this is what these education institutions do. Some to a really negative place, like South Korea education ranking is really detrimental in terms of the society and culture. But, it, but at least you know what goes into it, right? It's not this random for-profit company that used to sell magazines about news and now only sells rankings of schools. I would hope you just find anything else. But I think that means, too, that the somehow that has to be filled in the marketplace. Yeah. What would you say some of the harmful methodologies of U.S. rankings are? Like? Okay. So, imagine <laughs> the most important, well, I mean, what do you think is the most important data point? What gets the most weight, do you think, Amanda? In terms of? U.S. News and World Report. I think prestige. College prestige is really important to people, like in terms of what number they are. So how does that inform the methodology then? Like what, what are the ingredients that go into that, that final number? What do you think? Probably something like acceptance rates because the more harder it is to get into them perhaps if let's say out of, it's acceptance rate like 3% then that means it's more prestigious and it's only taken the best of the best, the cream mm -hmm. of the crop, something along those lines. I mean, what if I told you that colleges had very, very clear strategies that they could take to inflate that number dramatically? To make it seem way harder to get into than it really is. Mm -hmm. Because that's what the rankings do, right? You find a number that has the most value and then you build a strategy of how to get to that number. So for a long time, colleges had the pressure, they still do. You need to look more selective by denying as many kids as possible. Cool, then you build an applicant pool that you know you're going to deny most of the kids. So you make it incredibly easy to apply. You make it free to apply. You aggressively recruit students who you know will never have a chance of getting in. All to build, artificially build this applicant pool with the intention of denying them. Does that make you feel any different about that number? Yeah, I mean obviously, because then now it's like Right. It wasn't a genuine. So an interesting thing that came from the um, admissions, making the school's text optional in, in the, during the pandemic, was that they sort of boost in numbers mm -hmm. in, for schools, like elite schools, because more people felt like they could apply, mm -hmm. but acceptance rate were also lower than normal. In That's some, times. yeah. So I guess when you look at it in, ter in terms of those, in terms of that line, then mm -hmm. obviously it makes sense because then they have more people, so they uh, they can deny more people, and if they can mm -hmm. deny more people, then they can um, they look more prestigious. They can get more prestigious, right. and that that is one of this. I, I say cynical, not saying that you're being cynical, but it's how I view. It. I think that's one of the that was one of the reactions to test optional policies, not test free policies, but test optional policies was like, well, yeah, you're just going to boost your numbers. But here's my point about like those metrics that feed into the rankings. The most important metric in the ranking, what gets the most value, 
is called a reputation score, the prestige, right? But this is how it's filled out. So if you're a college president, you get every year this giant survey, and it lists all of the four-year colleges in the U.S., so close to 2,000 institutions. And you, college president, are asked, rank the prestige of these. First thing you do, and so many presidents have gone on record saying this, first thing you do is you put your own institution first. Second thing you do is you put the ones that, in your mind, are the most prestigious next, so that way you live in their neighborhood, right? And then what do you do with these 1,300 other colleges? You make it up. 25% of the ranking is based on that? It's self-serving, it's ill-informed, it's not informed. And then here's another crazy thing, and we'll move off of this, because I can rant on this bet forever. Maybe 15-ish, 20-ish years ago, US News and World Report did their annual ranking, and Caltech came out number one. And it was the first time that someone came out number one that wasn't Harvard, Princeton, or Yale. Harvard and Princeton and Yale reacted by saying, well, cool, we're just not going to play anymore. And so they changed the methodology so that Harvard, Princeton, or Yale will always be number one, two, and three. Always. It changes the perspective of how you look at these numbers and right. how you look at these rankings. I know you, your work also like focuses on like changing some of these structures mm -hmm. and making it more equitable. What do you think has been your most successful um, thing to do and what has been the hardest thing oh, to do? Oh gosh, what a great question. I think one of the most successful things that we've done within Accept, um, and this is a very big squishy answer, is we changed the conversation in admissions. Up until we kind of got started and became really prominent and loud and noisy and disruptive in the profession, conversations about race and equity happened sometimes. It was something that, like, you went to a conference, you saw these sessions, there might be one or two because you have to have it there, but it wasn't the center of this. And I would say since the founding of Acceptance, since we've been active, the biggest change is almost any space that you go into about college admissions now professionally, issues of racial equity, of fairness, of belonging, of diversity are at the center of just about every conversation now. And so we demanded that our profession get into this and make this a priority. I'm extremely, extremely proud of that. Yeah, I think that's the thing I'm most proud of. The thing that's most challenging is the slowness of systemic change. It really is challenging. And at the beginning of the pandemic, we saw a lot of changes occur in admissions. And I was really heartened by that. Like, wow, all these things I thought were so set in stone, suddenly in the crisis, we can pivot from that. We can kill testing. We can change deadlines. We can get rid of aspects of the application. We can do that. What was so annoying to me and frustrating was a year later, still in the pandemic, some of those big changes have reverted right back to where they were before because it's not convenient for a college. That's frustrating. Yeah. And this is like my last question. I'm so sorry. You're good, you're good. <laughs> but what about a small school like Dickinson in terms of racial equity? Because mm -hmm. we understand that, you know, we're one of the first schools to have the test optional, test free option. But at the same time, obviously, Dickinson is like 70% white. Mm -hmm. So what is something that a school like Dickinson should keep in mind for, you know, continue the work on racial equity? Sure. I'm going to have like two answers to that. Mm -hmm. the, 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 hmm. First, and it's something I, I had the privilege of meeting with the admissions team earlier today. 
And one of my challenges to them was, you guys need to look at every single step of the process through the lens of who does this benefit, who does this, how does this benefit the majority, how does this exclude people who are in the minority? Every single step of the way. And we talked about like essay questions, how you phrase it. We talked about the need even of having a recommendation. How is that a barrier for some people versus others? Um, so I challenged them to, to do an equity audit of the process itself. What are you doing? Why are you doing it? Are you achieving those goals? And who are you excluding? I think that's something that any institution could do if that was my challenge to them. The bigger challenge, I think, however, is that not just at Dickinson, but in almost every space in higher education, it seems, somehow seems to fall onto admissions to fix 600 years of ill, right? The focus in the conversation on affirmative action is all about admissions. But we never talk about what happens when a student gets there, right? So yeah, admissions is responsible for the recruitment and the pathway and who gets in. It is the rest of the campus's job to make sure that someone feels like they belong there, that they are affirmed, that they are appreciated, that they are seen. So to me, the challenge first, yeah, let's look at that pathway in, but the bigger question is what happens once you get here? Who is protected, who is not? And I think asking those same questions are really important but to take the onus off of admissions for a minute in that question and to turn it to the community and say, they're here now, what are you doing? Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much. Do you have any last comments before? Oh my gosh, I'm grateful that you know, had me here. That um, There's so much good buzz going on on this campus. I think this is a really cool place. I'm so grateful that the people here are asking thoughtful, engaging in hard questions and that they are willing willing to engage. We were talking about financial aid earlier with the admissions team and I asked some pretty pointed intense questions about their process and again, who's protected, who are, who's being valued and centered. And it was a really good conversation. I've certainly been in other places where that shuts it down, right? The folks here want to learn and they want to they want to engage and they want to do better and I'm very heartened by that. Thank you so much on behalf of the Clark Firm and Dickinson College. Thanks for accepting our invitation and for being here. We're truly honored. Oh, thank you. Thank you.